welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. I don't know if you've ever uh, mixed up your devotional life. Uh, by that, I do not mean losing your place and in, in, in your track through your devotional book or, or through hopefully the scriptures. But uh, I mean, after, at certain points, you're doing the same thing. And I have certain things that I kind of design every year that I'm going to do differently as I read through the Bible or walk through certain parts of it. Um, but occasionally I'll mix it up for a week or two. This year, I'm slow walking through the Gospels in the book of Acts, meditating, uh, comparing it to a favorite commentary, and just drawing more depth out of it. The Holy Spirit has taught me much. I'm uh, toward the end of the book of Acts right now, and, uh, and I decided a week or so ago to change it up a little bit because I pray as I meditate, pray, pray the Scriptures. And I went into a, a short work that I've gone back to many times. It's called The Attributes of God. It's by a writer named A.W. Pink. And, and he uh, does, there's uh, <laughs> an A.W. Pink fan in the audience. There you go, right on. <laughs> you, me, and that's about it. But anyway, <laughs> mighty man of God. Don't agree with everything he said, but as, as I don't agree with any human author. But boy, did he have a handle on God's greatness. And he wrote a book called The Attributes of God, and the chapters are short. It's one attribute per chapter, and so I've been taking those and taking one a day. And the one I was at most, well, relatively recently this week early, was God's omniscience, that he knows everything. And I want to read you the entry that I read through uh, by Dr. Pink. And it's, well, it's majestic, and it's written in a little bit of an older, older language, but listen to it. God is omniscient, he writes. He knows everything. Everything possible, everything actual. All events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He's perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven, in earth, and in hell. He knoweth what is in the darkness, Daniel 2.22. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing can be hidden from him. Nothing is forgotten by him. Well, may we say with the psalmist, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. Psalm 139. God's knowledge is perfect. He never errs. He never changes. He never overlooks anything. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Hebrews 4.13 says, But all things are open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Yes, such is the God with whom we have to do. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising, the psalmist said. Thou understandest my thought from afar. Thou cuppestest my path and my lying down. This is the old King James. And art intimately acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word in my tongue, but lo, Lord, thou knowest it all together. What a wondrous being is the God of Scripture. End of quote. Wow. He knows everything. He knows everything actual and possible. Isn't that a mind extender right there he knows everything visible and invisible he knew that the exact places my foot would fall as i walked up to this pulpit he knew the exact moment i would stop or start rather he never knows the moment i'll stop but he, no i'm just kidding <laughs> he knows that too 
You know when I'm done. And uh, he knows the words that are coming as I seek to humbly and in a stumbling way explain the Scripture. And he knows everything in your heart, in your mind. So I, I prayed through that. I went through those texts and adored him for it. And then I meditated on the fact that that is uh, both revealing if I'm out of step with him or comforting if I'm in step. And only he knows. And so I took great comfort from it. Well, here in this chapter, the ending of one chapter, the beginning of another, we see Jesus, who is God, right? Proved it, claimed it, showed it, rose as God. We see Jesus as the omniscient God, the all-knowing God in action. He knows what people are doing. He knows why they do it. He sees actions outwardly. He reads minds, and he discerns character all in these moments. In fact, in verse 4 of chapter 21, the end of our text, or, or closer to it, he, it, it, uh, it says that he saw, in verse 2 actually of 21, uh, chapter 21, he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. But then, as we'll learn in our text, him seeing, he saw not just the putting in of the coins, but who she was in her character, why she did it. The Greek word there is theorao, from which we get fear. It means that all of human life is a panorama opened to God. He sees it all as we walk across the stage of our being, our thinking, and our doing. And that's what's happening here. As I said, that's bad news for some who are game players, who are playing a game with God and trying to believe he doesn't know the true nature of their hearts. But it's also good news for sincere believers who wonder if he sees and knows. And so we're going to talk about what Jesus sees today. Since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, amen? He never changes the same Jesus we see in this chapter, risen and ascended into heaven, sees all things in the same way now, sees all things over the arc of time, and he sees into our hearts, not only ours, but also the hearts of all those in our lives in the same way today. So today we're going to look at it, two simple points, really. What Jesus saw that day, we're going to go into the passage and open up the details and I'll do my best to explain and reveal what I think happened that day. What Jesus saw that day, and then toward the end, we'll talk about why that matters in these days of our lives. We'll take the scripture, we'll vault a couple thousand years into your world and mine. And along the way, we're going to see a set of characters, aren't we? So first of all, what did Jesus see that day? Let's go into the passage. And immediately you'll see, immediately you'll see even though there's a, cha there's a chapter break here between where he talks about the scribes in chapter 20, verse 45, and then he has this new encounter with the rich and the poor widow in chapter 21. As this was inspired by the Holy Spirit in the original language, there were no chapter breaks. Those chapters weren't added for centuries, really. They're the invention of man. So this, your, your, your gospel of Luke just flows verse to verse. And these encounters are put together by how God inspired this story in the scripture. They're put together for a reason because I believe as an interpreter that they contrast two sets of characters. The scribes who were also really the rich and this poor widow, the lowest person in society. 
So two sets of characters, the scribes and a widow, and there's two scenes that unfold. Jesus is unfolding one scene at verse 45 where he speaks to his disciples about how corrupt these religious leaders were. And then moments or hours later, and what I believe to have been the same day in the temple, as the sun was setting and people were leaving the temple and dropping their offerings into the offering box, there's another scene in which he sees the life of the widow. So two, two sets of characters, two scenes. They're uninterrupted by that chapter break. And they go and they complete the day of Jesus in the temple. Now let's take a look at what Jesus sees that day. He fundamentally sees two sets of characters and two scenes that unfold. And in the first set of characters, the scribes, he saw incurable hypocrisy. And that's a deadly phrase to use, but I do believe it. Some of us can fall into hypocrisy in a moment or a season of our life or something we've hid in our life for a long time. But when God reveals it, we bow the knee and we walk into integrity. But the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about here seems incurable. It seems final. It seems that's their way. The way that's something they're going to die in these scribes and head to hell in. So it is a stirring thing to call somebody incurably hypocritical but jesus does that here he calls them hypocrites he tells his disciples and followers to be beware of them going forward in life and at the very end in verse 47 he says they're heading to an eternal condemnation so they were incurably hypocritical how do we understand that well let's go into the details of the text now and we'll basically talk about three things the setting of this the subjects, and we're getting into more detail about who they were, and then the scene that Jesus saw and what he perceived. So what's the setting of this first set of characters where Jesus sees these incurable hypocrites? Well, to review, uh, Luke 20 uh, is in 21, really, go forward in the final week, week of Christ's life. We know it is Passion Week. It began when Jesus entered the city at the very end of Luke 19 in the triumphal entry. A lot of Bible scholars debate what day of the week that was, whether, whether it was a Sunday, and traditionally we've called it Palm Sunday, or whether according to the Hebrew calendar and some of the things that we know from research now, it could have been a Monday. I tend to lean toward the idea that Jesus actually entered Jerusalem in that triumphal entry on Monday to the Jews the second day of the week, to us the first. Regardless of that, he had been busy in that week. He had cleansed the temple of all the the business operations that these corrupt and rich scribes had turned worship into, ripping off the people and, and profaning God's worship. He had he'd driven thousands out of the great court of the temple uh, as, as he had come in after the triumphal entry the next day, which would have been Tuesday, drove thousands out, and then he began to teach. This next day was Wednesday, and that's what chapter 20 was filled with. We know that chapter 20 begins with Jesus teaching in the temple and he was teaching the people and preaching the gospel. Now, chapter 20, I believe, covers the, 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 the span of one full day. And as I've told you already, the theme of the chapter is gospel conflict. Jesus preaching the gospel, verse 1 of chapter 20, and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees resisting Christ's teaching, resisting the gospel. And so the theme is gospel conflict. Them attacking him, trying to catch him in error, trying to destroy his authority and credibility to take the people away from him, and Jesus masterfully defeating them at every turn. It's been an awesome story to read, hasn't it? 
Finally, Jesus turns the tables on them after they've tried all their attacks. In verse 40 of Luke 20, says they no longer dared to ask him any questions. Totally shut down. But then he turns the tables and asks them a question to, 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 as one final effort to reveal to them that he indeed is the Messiah, but that he's also God Almighty. And they needed to come in repentance to him and believe his gospel. That's verse 41 where we saw he talked about his deity and how David had predicted it. But all this was rejected. And so now we come to verse 45. And Jesus, in this final week, having faced the fiercest opposition and his worst opponents, moves from compassion to condemnation, and he's done with them. He knows they're incurable in their sin. They're incurable hypocrites, and he shifts from speaking to them, and in verse 45, he turns to his disciples who were around him all during that day. No more words to the Pharisees. No more challenges to the scribes. No more evangelizing those hardened hearts. Now he turns to his disciples who are going to be with him in the final three days leading up to crucifixion day. And he begins to focus on them. And he warns them about these corrupt people. And well, he should, because these same scribes and Pharisees were plotting that very night to kill him. And they'd carry it out through Judas Iscariot and the false trials and turn him over to crucifixion. He warns them, the disciples, about the character of these men. He says, verse 46, beware of the scribes. And so that's the setting. That's how all this is moving now. It's moving into the darkness of crucifixion day. Who are the subjects? From the setting to the subjects. Well, I told you they're, scri they're the scribes, and who were they? There were the high, high priests and chief priests. There were the Pharisees, and then there were the scribes. It's hard to keep all these evil players separated on your scorecard. <laughs> Well, the, the, the scribes were the scripture experts that uh, twisted the Old Testament to create oppressive laws that they placed on the backs of the people so that they could have an empire, a religious empire that they could use to control people. They not only twisted the Old Testament, they said the Old Testament really isn't enough. God's revealing new revelation and laws to us as, the, as your scribes, and we have even more laws for you to follow. And we're the only source, and we're the ones that can examine your behavior. Legalism and also new revelation, bad combination. We see it even today. If you've ever been in a cult, that's exactly how it started. So these men were corrupt. They were spiritual liars. But not only were they theologians, they were also the lawyers in that society. How convenient. They knew all the law, and it was, a, it was a theocracy. It was a Jewish society. And so if you had a legal problem, you didn't run to the Roman authorities. You had to go to the scribes. And they had the authority to decide your case with a person who had offended you or, or uh, committed a crime against you, or if you had a financial debate or whatever it was. That's going to become key in this story. Now, the people were told to trust them, but Jesus knew better. And many times in his ministry, he had looked at them and said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look great on the outside, but inside you are dead men's bones. You're spiritually dead, and this people is deceived. They don't know it, but I, as omniscient God, know you. So there had been this battle for three years. 
And these corrupt men, with their designed theological weapons, had oppressed the people. And Jesus was sick of it. He would call them to repentance many times, but now that call is no longer coming. And he says, oh, beware of these especially going forward. So the setting, the final week heading to the darkness of the cross, the subjects of this were the most dangerous people to their spiritual lives. They'd be writing the, the script and, and casting out the lines during the false trials of Jesus. Oh, they were dangerous people. Well, now let's go to the scene in which we, we see them. This begins at verse 45. They're introduced. Jesus says, beware of them, verse 46. And now verse 46, he talks about their behaviors, what they lived for. But then, he, then, he, then at the very end, he reveals they had no inner life at all. So two things under this. In this scene, now I go back to my opening premise, Jesus saw things in situations and in people, and he always saw the truth. He bored into the actions and the character and the motivation of people. Here he does it. And he takes them apart before his listeners. What did he see about these? Number one, he said, these people love outer honor. These people love outer honor. How do we know this? Well, he illustrates it in verse 46. He says, these are the people whom you've watched all your lives your spiritual superiors. What do these scribes like to do? Verse 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now you'd look at that and you think, well, what's wrong with that? Everybody wore robes back then. <laughs> and if I had to wear a robe, I'd probably wear a long one. My knees are ugly. My wife reminds me about it all the time. But anyway. What was the offense in wearing long? Now, you have to understand a little bit of this. It's hard to get from the English trans translation. But yes, uh, men wore robes particularly, and, and, and they, they, they wore them over their, 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 their garments. And they were, uh, they were designed in a certain way in the Hebrew culture. Because you see, back in, in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers in chapter 15, God actually gave a commandment about the outer robe that was to be worn. And he said, when you wear your outer robe, attach a tassel of blue, blue thread to the bottom. A tassel is a thread with a bit of a tie on it. It kind of, kind of splays out as a, in a flower pattern. And God said, I want it not only to be at the edge of your robes, but I want it to be blue. Now, if you go back and study the Old Testament, blue was an image of the law of God, the commandments of God. And he wanted Jewish men to wear this. Today, they still wear them on their robes. And sometimes if you watch uh, Jews pray at the, at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, you'll see them, and it's over their, over their heads. And uh, some of the Orthodox Jews wear them as well on stoles that come over their robes or their outer garments, and they're called a talith. And at, at, at the four edges of the robe would, would be these little strings of blue hanging down and with a little kind of flowered out display at the bottom. God said, I want you to wear this as a visible reminder that you love my commandments and that you're committed in integrity to follow them. That's a beautiful image. What could be wrong with that? 
Well, Jesus says here they love to wear long robes. What we see here, as I've researched it, is that these guys weren't just satisfied wearing a little small, uh, little talith right here uh, that was like everybody else. They believed they knew more of the law. They were more spiritual. They kept more of the law. They were spiritually superior. So, of course, they deserved longer tassels at the bottom of their robes and the edges of their sleeves. And so they got into a competition, and they would put not one, not two, but three or four long taliths at the end of their robes. And they would walk around, and automatically, when you walked into any gathering, people would look at you and ooh and ah, because you obviously knew the law better, and you knew that in your heart you were keeping the law better, so you were more spiritual. They loved that. That's, uh, that's just, wow. you got to have a huge view of yourself to believe that you're three or four times more godly than anybody else around you. Mm, more on that later. So they, they, they loved to, to parade around in that address. In fact, some of the worst ones would say, I'm so holy and I've got so much revelation from God that if you disobey my words as a scribe, my words are more important than the words of Moses. That's how deceived they were. Not only this, Jesus said, but they, they loved the greetings. Look at that. They loved greetings in the marketplace. You say, what's wrong with somebody saying, hey, Abe or, hey, Joshua? No, no, no. These are not greetings like you would give somebody you knew. They were words of honor like you gave somebody who was a a great superior. What were some of the words? Well, Jesus revealed them. I think it's the Gospel of Matthew, right along chapter 8. They loved to, to be called rabbi. Now, what does a rabbi, the title, mean? Well, it's more than you think wasn't just pastor. It had a tremendous amount of weight with it. The, the best translation of rabbi I came across was exalted teacher, excellency, most knowledgeable one, most wise. How'd you like that? That'll spin your fins if you're a spiritual leader, if people think that about you. I was joking with people today as they came into church. I said, good morning. They said, good morning, pastor. I said, I actually prefer your excellency. <laughs> your eminence. I'll settle for reverend, but only if you got nothing else. And we all knew I was joking, thank God. They weren't joking. They also, Jesus said in Matthew, uh, wanted to be called father, and that's why Jesus said uh, in Matthew, do not call anyone on earth your father, for only one is your father, he who is in heaven. Father meant source, it meant the source of your spiritual life, and they had arranged for the people to, tr- to view them as a special spiritual presence who could impart special spiritual blessing. No man on earth can do that. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can see how corrupt they were, and you can see how that corruption extends into religious leadership today. I don't think you need me to explain. They also like being called leader. And in Jesus, also in the Gospel of Matthew, said, Do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. Call yourself servant. (laughs) Call yourself a servant. Well, that was these guys. Long prayer robes with exaggerated imagery wanting and expecting to be called rabbi and father and great one. But then he goes on, he says, that not only that, they love the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. What's this all about? Well, when you went to synagogue, uh, all the people sat facing forward, looking toward the front of the 
worship building, which makes sense. At the front of the, the synagogue and off to one side, there was the, uh, the cabinet that contained a copy of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly the Torah, the first five books, and the law of God. And th that was a sacred place in the synagogue. Everybody sat facing the front and looking at the Torah cabinet. The leaders would file in, and they would seek to have the seats at the very front. And those seats didn't, they, they, they were turned around. They had the back to the Torah, and they faced the people. And they were sort of like throne-like seats, sometimes made out of marble, and they were set in the front of the synagogue. Everybody else sat on wooden or marble or stone benches, kind of shoulder to shoulder. Oh, the leaders streamed in, and they took their places seating in these thrones, looking out to the group. And, of course, they wanted to be in the highest seat of honor. Which one was that? It was the one closest to the Torah cabinet. That's what Jesus was saying. They think they're spiritually uncommon, and they jockey for the best seat next to the things of God, next to the place of honor. You can see what Jesus thought about that. And I, I, I thought, you know, I understand some of that because being a spiritual leader or being entrusted with leadership by a group of God's people can create a real sense of specialness, or when you're around spiritual authority, it can go to your head. All pastors need to be aware of it, and uh, younger pastors especially, I guess, and I was a younger pastor once. I know that's hard to believe. I started in ministry very early, very early, young 20s, and uh, still going to seminary, became employed full-time as a staff pastor in a megachurch. That megachurch was led by one of the greatest Bible expositors I have ever seen and still amazing gifting and an immense personal presence. He was a 6'4", I think, 250, a booming voice of a lion, and masterful, not only in the pulpit, but just everywhere he went. He had this magnetic presence, and, and everybody on our staff followed him without question, and adored him, and we wanted to be around him. It was a big staff. I think there were 25 of us or more, and you didn't get much time to be around the big dog. But uh, we were in a rotation, uh, and uh, on staff you got into a rotation to be in, prayer, in the prayer room before the service, and then you got to sit on the platform. Uh, and our on our platform, it was a 2,000-seat auditorium, and a raised platform, and uh, we had uh, we had six seats up there. I'll, I'll I'll remember and confess that man, I checked the schedule every week because I wanted to see when my time time came up to be on in prayer and on the platform. And I remember uh, I remember getting into the prayer room and and he would kneel and we would all kneel and pray over the message and that's great and it's awesome and it was very sincere. But I I remember at times. Oh, wishing I, I got there a little earlier so I could kind of scrunch over and kneel more near the man. Then, of course, 
Uh, when prayer was finished, we got up and the, the room was set aside from the main sanctuary. There was one door to get in and go out on the platform. And I got to confess that a lot of times there was a little subtle holy traffic jam of us four guys trying to get in that door right after him. Why? Well, there's six chairs on that platform. He's taken one. And the rest and the associate, the executive pastor took the other. And so the four of us got young guys that were left well, we had the opportunity to sit next to the man. Now, I confess causing more than one holy traffic jam, you know, and going back in my mind to how thrilling it was to sit near the man. And now looking back on it, realizing I was young and I was tasting the ego of a huge church. And uh, you know what? That was all flesh. Understandable, but flesh. As I went on in ministry and discovered the real nature of it and the heart that really is needed to persevere in it all, oh boy, I tell you, a lot of that, a lot of that pride faded. But, you know, I got into Christian radio at a certain point after that, and, and that put me into a level of interaction with mega leaders in many different settings. And I saw... You know, I sat in my share of green rooms at big churches that were designed basically on Hollywood mode and walked into speaker centers where none of the other attenders of the conference were ever allowed. I saw guys, pastors and leaders roll up in their town cars, driven. I met their uh, body men, yes. Prominent pastors have body men. Don't tell me what they do. And I saw, boy, I tell you, it's possible at any level and level in any age, and we see it in our ministry world today. You can, as a spiritual leader, quickly get out of touch, lose some humility and accountability, how easy it is. So these men, as corrupt as they were in their hearts, it's possible for any leader, and you need to pray for all spiritual leaders to understand how easy that is. Well, Jesus here sees all these dimensions. But it, it went beyond the show. And he gets to something pretty ominous in verse 47. All these men love all the outward honor. But in reality, they had no inner honor or inner life. He shifts in verse 47. All these supremely important, self-important, spiritually superior, learned men Outwardly look so great, but in verse 47, this is what they're like in their inner life, in their secret life. They devour widows' houses. Wow. What's that all about? Well, um, like I told you, they were the attorneys. They were the lawyers. The most unfortunate and defenseless person in Hebrew society was a widow. She'd lost her husband's earning power. She wasn't able to support herself at the level due to their bases of society that she had. She was most, most defenseless. That's why in the, in the Old Testament and Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places, God says, I want you to take care of widows. They're important to me. Well, when you became a widow in Jewish society, you, you had to go to someone for protection. And you went to the scribes because they were charged with helping you hold on to your property. They were, help, they were charged with helping you go through probate. They were charged with helping you make decisions. And, and we see that today when, when you lose 
uh, a spouse, often you'll go to an attorney, and that's all well and fine, and they're great. These guys were not great. They had total authority over her life. She didn't get to ask for anything. They just told her, this is the way it's going to be. And they were doing three things. Number one, they were charging fees for this, even though God in the Old Testament saw nothing of that. So they said, of course, we'll give you guidance. And there's just a fee for this each time we meet. And it was exorbitant. So this poor widow with little money already had less money after every conversation. Secondly, they would take charge of the widow's estates and and, uh, spend months or years procrastinating doing anything with it, but they would still charge their fees to advise. And those fees literally ate away at the widow's estate, and often the widow would lose their house. That's what he means when you say you, you eat out, you devour. The Greek word means to, to eat off a plate till you're satisfied. You take away widows' houses. And a lot of times they put the widow's money in investments to make money with the widow. But the widow was on the hook because her house was collateral. How in the world is that personally justified? It's not. So here we see this incredible, ugly specter of Uh, Loving honor on the outside, but living in robbery and viciousness on the inside. Jesus also said that they, uh, they, for a pretense, prayed long prayers. Again, he's really coming back and condemning these people. Outwardly, they were spiritually honorable. They looked great, but inwardly, they were spiritually dead. You know, there's nothing wrong with praying long prayers. I've... I've been in different parts of the world where prayer is, is an intimate part of worship. I've watched African pastors pray prayers that went longer than American pastors' sermons. And they were full of theology, by the way. There's nothing wrong with long prayers, but Jesus says when you do it for a pretense, there's everything wrong with it. You do it to show off, but you have no inner life. He condemned it many times, didn't he? So that's what he saw. They loved outer honor, but they had no inner honor or life. In fact, at the very end of verse 47, Jesus tells us they were spiritually dead and they were heading to a hell that they didn't even expect. They will receive the greater condemnation. They were hypocrites in reality. They were loveless in reality. They were greedy. They were abusive and they were spiritually dead. And Jesus said they're hell bound. And when they get there, they're going to taste it with a vengeance. Jesus says they're to have an even even greater condemnation in eternity than others. The Bible does teach, in my opinion, degrees of punishment in hell. And Jesus is saying here, these spiritually hypocritical dead men are going to suffer a deeper penalty than others. And since Jesus is already there in the future, he knew what he was talking about. So what did Jesus see that day? Well, he saw an incurable hypocrisy. I hope you get the sting of it. But now we remember the other character and the other scene, verse 1 of chapter 21. This is probably later in the day. What did Jesus see in this poor widow? Not incurable hypocrisy. He saw remarkable sincerity. Let's watch this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in 
two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So the scene shifts here. And there's a contrast between the rich scribes and the poor widow. And it's intentional in Scripture. The Spirit of God is showing you two different hearts, two different people, both of which Jesus saw that day. We'll go through the same analysis, the setting, the subjects, and the scene that he saw. What was the setting? Well, I believe this comes toward the end of that day, that Wednesday in the great temple where Jesus had defended himself and preached to the people and been attacked relentlessly and finally gave his final evangelistic call to these hardened spiritual leaders. And now Jesus is sitting, perhaps in the area known as the court of the women at the outside of the temple, as people would flow out of the temple. They'd spent their morning and good part of their day there worshiping, learning, and now sunset was arriving and they were moving out. And as they moved out, it was, it was customary to give your offering to the operation of the temple. Jesus was sitting there and most commentators believe he was both weary from a long, long day of preaching and fighting and he was done. He was now fully aware of the fact that these spiritual leaders would not turn. They were incurable in their sin and his mind was going toward the following three days. He was going to focus on his disciples on the cross. He's sitting perhaps in weariness and perhaps in sadness in the court of the women. And it says that he sees people putting their gifts into the offering box. What was that all about? Uh, Dr. Alfred Edersheim, who wrote uh, the greatest book of any research scholar on the temple itself in that time, tells us that this was in the court of the women, the great place where thousands could gather at the edge of the temple as you headed home. And there was an offering box there. Actually, there were 13. There were 13 uh, trumpet-shaped metal uh, little tubes. It's just the strangest thing. And they were lined up in the court of the women. They were made out of metal. They were in the shape of a Hebrew shofar, which was, was a, a trumpet that they used. And uh, it had a narrow top at the, at the top, like any trumpet would, and then it would splay out toward the bottom. And these 13 trumpets designed out of metal were in a line, and each of them had a different tithe or tax you could pay to keep the temple going. And you were obligated to pay something. And uh, these metal receptacles were the place where Jesus watched the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. The 13 trumpets all headed down, headed down to one big metal offering box down below. And so this is the, the, the scene, and, and the, uh, the whole environment was one where people gave into these offering boxes, and you could hear the clatter of their coins from the top of the, the trumpet and then spiraling with a little velocity as the trumpet got a little wider as their coins rattled down and then finally a big clash at the bottom if you dropped a lot of coinage and all the people would hear. Now, who are the subjects? Well, he sees two people give, the rich and this poor widow. How did the rich give? Well, ostentatiously. Uh, Jesus told another parable about them in Matthew. And he told the people, don't be like these Pharisees and scribes, these rich leaders who when they come, they sound a trumpet before they arrive to the trumpets. 
Total hypocrisy. They had a guy going in front of them at the end of the day, blowing a trumpet so everybody's attention would turn around to see the rich scribe walk forward and put his offering into the trumpets. Often he didn't have enough hands to hold what he offered. And so he had one or two servants behind him with these boxes of coins, and the servant would go from trumpet to trumpet to trumpet and pour a bit into each trumpet, and you would watch in awe and hear the coins hit the trumpet and spiral around and then clash into the offering box. Jesus said, don't be like these living hypocrites. And that's what he was seeing that day. Oh, the rich were coming up and putting their gifts into the Greek word as they kept putting, they kept pouring over and over again. Then when the noise got too bad, I can imagine them saying, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> didn't mean for my gifts to interrupt your conversation. Jesus saw this and was sickened by it. But then he sees the widow Everybody's eyes were on the rich, listening to the coins and counting the boxes. But there was a little widow, perhaps after the rich parade had ceased, and as the people were all milling around, dropping their handful in or whatever, a little widow steals from the back of the crowd, and you could tell the way she looked as she was a widow, the poorest of the poor, the forgotten, the one who's shamed by her society. And it's almost like she would lift her shawl up as she came to one trumpet, not the 13. And she came, and Jesus saw her put in two small copper coins. There was no pouring. There was no clattering. In fact, you would have had to strain to hear the little plink. Coins. There were two. They're called small copper coins. Leptized the Greek, and it meant a little shaving of metal. It was the smallest coin in use in that day. It was it was of virtually no value. It was like the pennies that you see in a parking lot that you don't even bother to pick up. And she had two. All saw the rich. No one saw this woman except the all-seeing Jesus. He saw this poor widow put in not just one of the coins, but commentators are astonished that she could have kept one for herself. The only obligation was to give an offering. She could have kept one for herself, but the commentators point out, oh, she gave two. And Jesus says, she gave all. And being the one who knew her mind, he knew that it was all that she had to live on that day. The word poor widow here is a Greek word that meant so poor that you lived day to day. Whatever you earned this day took everything of your expenses that day, and you had nothing till you found work the next day. So this widow Mary, as Jesus said, put in everything she had to live on for that day. And who knows what would happen the next day, whether she'd find work or beg alms. Wow. Oh, what did Jesus see? That's the third thing, the scene. 
Well, he'd seen scribes that, lo- that loved outer honor, but he now sees a woman who had no outer honor, no outward esteem. She was takos in the Greek, desperately poor. Nobody looked at her. Nobody even knew she was there except Jesus. The scribes had outer honor, but they had no inner honor. Here is the exact opposite. Here's a woman who had no outward honor from the world, but she had inner life. See, I think the whole point of this story is hypocrisy versus sincerity. That's what Jesus saw. He read her heart. He knew her life. He understood her motivation. He knew how she was giving and why. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, some have said, actually, I think this, they think this passage is about a rule for giving and it teaches sacrificial giving. Uh, I think you might be able to draw that idea from this, but no, the point of the passage, and we see where it's placed in the gospel, how it's knitted to the other story, it's about sincerity versus hypocrisy. Yes, she gave sacrificially. She gave both coins, not just one. And Jesus commended her for that, but is he commanding this? I mean, that's a little extreme if you think about it. Jesus was not establishing a principle that you you need to give until you have nothing left. You need to come on a Sunday and give everything you've earned for that week and everything you've held back for your bills and your rent and take care of your family and pour it all in. He's not teaching that absurd principle. Not teaching that you should give until you have nothing left in this way. In fact, the scripture elsewhere says that we should give as we are able, 1 Corinthians 8, and as we are led to out of a cheerful heart. There's no, there's no mandatory issue here of giving like she gave, but it was the leading of God in her life in that moment to give that way. That's what Jesus was seeing and commending. It was her decision on that day to take not one but two of everything she had and to put it into that trumpet because she wanted to do it for God. And when Jesus saw that, he says, this woman contributed more than all of them, more than all the rich scribes. They gave out of their abundance. They walked away just about as rich as when they walked in. Their investment funds were turning over more interest than they could spend. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Jesus commended her. She had no outward honor, but she had a rich inner life. And he, he talked about what she gave, not monetarily, but personally, And he sat there and he watched her blend back into the crowd. And he watched her and he was pleased. Not with what she gave or how she gave, but with her heart. And the Holy Spirit preserved her story for generations. Because she illustrated what God truly looks for in people. Sincerity, not hypocrisy. That's the story of the passage. Well, Let me ask the final question then. If that's what Jesus saw that day, how does it matter today? What does this matter in these days of our lives, our walk? Well, I think we can learn from it in two ways. I remember, I mean, you've got to remember that God looks on the heart. People tend to judge by outward actions and imagery. Aren't we addicted to that in this present society? Gifting, achievement, the way somebody looks, what, you know, all of that. But in 1 Samuel 16 is a memorable verse where God says, God does not see as humans see. Humans look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, if that's true, 
If we're living out of faith with God today, and we know he looks at our heart, we can't fool him. Perhaps we need a taste of conviction. That's the first way this applies. If you're struggling with hypocrisy, you need conviction. And the all-seeing God knows everything. And you can ask him for conviction about whether you're out of phase in your life and whether you're playing a game with God or in his love. He will bring you conviction. And he won't stop. If you're his, he won't stop pressing on that inner circle of things you're holding back from him until you begin to give it over. That's what he does with his beloved. See, I think that's the whole message of this passage. It's not about giving. It's about sincerity and hypocrisy. Now, there are some people listening to me today who may be in as much spiritual trouble as these scribes were. You may be not a believer at all. But because of your background, because of your upbringing, because of your your position in society, uh, you've been in church life all your life, You've been accepted for the way you looked outwardly and nobody ever looked inwardly. But you know you're just as lost as these guys. But you're caught up in your possessions. You're caught up in your honor. You're caught up with what people think of you and you are, are deceived by it. I appeal to you, listen to the words of Jesus because my word to you is to repent and find Christ. Or maybe you're what I would call an experienced Christian. You truly know the Lord and you've grown in the Lord and you've known him for many years, but you've known him so long that you're just kind of, you know you're covered by grace and you're coasting on your religion. Do you know, I, I mean, if you don't understand this, I sure do, because <laughs> I've lived it many years in my life where there's, there are some issues in your inner life, the life that Jesus sees but others don't, that you're holding on to and you know that he's convicting you and he wants into that circle, the circle I talked about last week. The circle that only he knows and he wants you to admit. The Holy Spirit will chasten and move on you until you begin to respond. And when you respond, it is liberating and it brings you into integrity, and it gives you the ability to fight sin in a unique way. If he's doing that in your life, respond. Open that to him. Lastly, you might be like this widow, and you've been living for Christ sincerely, but you don't get a lot of outer honor. You don't have the spiritual abilities that get you attention in a church. You don't have the economic means that puts you in any position of visibility, whatever. You may have become a widow, and sometimes with widowhood comes invisibility. It's a sad thing in our churches. Or maybe you're just an everyday Christian, but you, you're just, you feel unseen, and yet you know that even though you've been unseen, you've been faithful to Jesus in your life. You're fighting your battles. You're welcoming him into that circle of things that he wants to control. And and you're obeying God, maybe even suffering for it, and you think right now today that nobody really sees. Well, now you know that Jesus sees. He is with you. The one who matters sees. And in fact, 
all of your struggle and all of your suffering, even though you're forgotten, even though you may walk out of this room not having been greeted and not being known. I regret that, but that happens. Someone sees. And if you're battling and suffering, maybe you're sharing your faith and suffering for it in a family environment, whatever it might be, the reward is coming. That's what you'll be rewarded at the great judgment seat of Christ called the Bema Seat. When we're raptured or when you die, we're all going to get there and you're going to come before the Lord and He's going to reward you for all that you suffered for Him, all you did for Him. And maybe this woman, I don't know, maybe she was already a believer in Messiah. Maybe she'd been listening to Jesus that he'd preached as, he, as He had preached that week and she was at the edge of the crowd, but she was in the family of God and Or maybe she became a believer later than that when the, some months later when the day of Pentecost came and she saw Peter preaching and she dared to believe in Christ and she was one of the 3,000 and and she was taken into the family of God and they didn't care that she was a shabby widow. They said, hey, you're a sister in the new family of God now. And maybe she became part of a house church in Jerusalem for the years that she lived and then she passed away. And that means if she did, if she was a believer and she passed away, she's in heaven right now, but she's waiting for the rest of us, right? She became part of what's known as the church age and Christ is building his church and taking his church to heaven through death now, but through rapture at a great future event. And when that future event has happened, we're all caught up to be with him. Then we'll go into the great judgment hall and Christ will be there at the great Bema seat and all the members of the church from the first day in in, in Jerusalem to today, we're all going to be there. And at that great reward ceremony, Um, she's going to walk up like the rest of us. None of us are going to know what we're going to be rewarded for. Some of the stuff we thought we'd get acclimates for turned out to have been done in our own strength, and he wasn't care much about them. But some of the great battles and the things, the things we've served him for, just because it's him, he's going to reward. And maybe that widow will be called out of the crowd by the Lord Jesus himself. And he'll say, remember that sunset day in the temple. When you decided before God to give all you had and you didn't think anybody saw. Well, I did. I saw you. Come into your reward, O good and faithful servant. 